So when Andrea and I were younger, um, we went to see a financial planner. Uh, we were both on part-time incomes, and so we really wanted to do the best we could with the money we had. We had a young family, and money was tight. Um, and one of the recommendations the planner sort of made was uh, a suggestion. He said, I know you're Christians, but you need to look at your giving. Now, when you're trying to stay afloat in a sinking economy, which is our theme at the moment, your expenses are growing faster than your income, so you're essentially going backwards. One of the first things you'll look at is your discretionary spending, uh, one of the things you need to look at. So that's your hobbies and recreation, gym fees, Netflix subscription, coffee. Not coffee, coffee's a necessity, not a discretionary item. So one of those discretionary items is charitable giving and church giving. Now, Andrea and I have always made it our goal to give at least 10% to the Lord. Uh, that's what a tithe is, is, is 10%. Um, and so when the financial planner made that suggestion to us, um, suddenly put us in this, oh, well, what are we going to do? This question, what would you do? Well, the people of Israel were facing a similar question over tithing. In our reading today from uh, Malachi chapter 3, evidently things weren't going so well for them economically either, and they were faced with the same kind of choices as us, have to cut back. And as it turns out, they were cutting back on their tithe. And this is what the Lord says. So this is from Malachi Chapter 3, verse 7. So this is the last book in the Old Testament in our English Bibles. And it says, Since the days, and this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi, Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will, uh, will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then the, all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a de delightful land, says the Lord of armies. So the prophet Malachi probably wrote these words around uh, 450 to 500 years before Christ. Uh, after the exiles had returned from Babylon, where they'd been in captivity, they'd rebuilt the temple roughly around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. By now, Israel was a province of the Persian Empire, and they were free to practice their religion, but needless to say, they weren't doing very well. And God brings a number of accusations to them uh, through Malachi. The one we're concerned with today is this charge of robbing God. 
So it seems that the people were facing an economic hardship through failing crops, perhaps maybe drought or locust plague or, or something similar to that. And as so happens when things aren't going our way, uh, they were throwing up their hands and saying, what's the point of following God if everything keeps going wrong? So they were having to make some choices about their discretionary spending and decided that one of the expenditures they could do without was giving to the temple, giving the tithes and contribution, or the tenths as my translation puts it, to the temple. So what's that about? Well, in the Bible, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, there are actually many instructions on giving, tithes and contributions. So I just want to... Um, highlight a few. So Leviticus 27 verses 30 to 32, I'm not going to read them because we don't have time, but in those verses the Lord said that a tenth of everything the land produced once they got into Israel was to be his, it was to be given to the temple. That was their crops, their orchards, their flocks, everything. And if they wanted to redeem it, they could do that, they had to pay a little bit of extra, they had to add a fifth to the value and give it to the temple. Part of the temple offerings were burnt as a sacrifice to God very often, but in Numbers 18 verse 8, God says the part that wasn't burnt, which was actually most of the animal usually, uh, was given to Aaron and his sons, so that's the priests, as a portion and permanent statute. So essentially those offerings were how the priests got paid uh, and this was because when the Israelites entered the promised land, there were 12 tribes, if you remember, and uh, one of those tribes was Levite, which the priests were a part of the tribe of Levite. So all the other 11 tribes were given an allotment of land. Everyone went in, um, and essentially every family in Israel at this stage was meant to have a family sort of allotment. The Levites and the priests didn't get one of those. They had a few towns and some of the lands around it, but they basically didn't have those ancestral lands. They relied on the temple for their income. Deuteronomy 26 uh, verse 12 says that in addition to the regular tithes, every three years the people were to bring a tithe and make it available to the Levites, as we've just mentioned, the resident aliens, so foreigners in the country, fatherless children and widows, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. And so that tithe every three years was essentially a way of caring for the poor. It was welfare for the people of Israel. So there's a lot more, but to summarise, uh, the tithes and contributions were an act of worship and an acknowledgement of God's ownership over Israel. They were a wage to the priests and Levites who were devoted to the ministry and kept the temple going. And they formed a part of the welfare for the poor. And so in that light, can you see what it meant for a covenant people who were in relationship with God when they were slack in bringing their tithes and contributions to the temple? They really were robbing God of what was rightfully his. There was literally no food in the storehouse for the priests. Um, so they couldn't do their job properly. And the poor had no relief from the grinding poverty and injustice. And that, says God, is why the people were suffering economic hardship. In terms of the covenant, God had said, if you live by the terms of the covenant, then I will look after you, 
your crops won't fail, you'll have no poor among you, because just the way the covenant was set up was they would look after each other. Um, if, if, if they lived by the covenant, it's almost like God didn't need to do anything, but he would, he would protect them. But the people had broken the covenant. And so what had happened is God says, if you walk in the covenant, I will bless you, I will protect you. But they had placed themselves outside of that covenant blessing. And so they're no longer covered by the blessing, but by a curse. And I'll talk about that a little more in a moment. The people were withholding their tithes and offerings and contributions because things were getting hard. But what they didn't realize was things were getting hard because they weren't honoring God. And part of that, there's other things in Malachi, but part of that was because they weren't honoring God and being faithful with their offerings. And so things were getting hard. And so God says to them, test me. Essentially, he's saying, hey, try out covenant faithfulness. Let's just try this agreement we made together and see what it's like to live under those terms. Now, you might be saying this morning, yeah, but we're no longer under that old covenant. That's an Old Testament thing. We're in the New Testament. It doesn't apply. Well, that's kind of true. But, you know, the New Testament actually has quite a bit more to say about this subject than you might realize. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul said that the things that happened to Israel, all the bad things that happened to Israel, took place as an example to us. And so we're to learn from it, and uh, rather than writing off the Old Testament as something that's outdated. And in fact, it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 10, Paul makes almost the exact same point that Malachi is talking about in these verses. So in this, um, what I'm about to read, he's talking about poverty relief that all the Gentile churches were sending to Jerusalem, which was in the midst of a famine. But he writes this general principle that applies beyond that specific context. He says, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food, that's God, will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will reap generously. Do you know it goes beyond this? Do you know that Paul um, appeals to the principle of the Levitical tithe out of the Old Testament to argue that Christian workers are entitled to an income as ministers of the gospel. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. Don't you know that the, those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? So that's what I was just talking about. In the same way, he says, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And then in 1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 17 to 18, he says, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honour, 
especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. And that do not muzzle an ox comes from uh, Leviticus. So honour here means payment. I think that's pretty obvious from the the context. It's what we used to call an honorarium. Um, And Paul is saying the elders, now what we call pastors, were meant to be paid by the church in the same way priests and Levites were. Isn't that interesting? So the Old Testament perhaps has something more to say uh, to us than we realise. And I just want to point out, if it says it about money, it probably says other things as well we need to pay attention to. But that will be getting us off topic. So what does this mean for us today? Tithing, and actually more than a tithe when you read the Old Testament, uh, and certainly in the New, where generosity uh, of giving is, is commanded, uh, tithing was commanded in the Torah, the uh, Old Testament law, and the Gospel teaches us the same principles for today in the church. And so what does that mean for you and for me? Are we under a curse if we don't give? Is some kind of prosperity gospel at work when I give? Well, no and no. For one, Jesus has taken every curse uh, upon himself on the cross. So we don't have to fear a curse. Uh, And I don't know if I need to say the prosperity gospel is basically a heresy. But there is this principle of sowing and reaping at work that the Scriptures clearly, old and new, point out. And it's just an axiom of life, isn't it? What you invest in is what you get a return from, whether that's with your money or whether that's with your time, whether that's with your emotions. What we put into is what we get a return from. Consider this, when pastors and Christian workers, when money is coming into the church then we can do gospel ministry. We can pursue the gospel, uh, which brings growth and blessing to God's kingdom. And when they're not paid, their attention is divided at best. There's this other principle at work too that has to do with the nature of blessing and cursing, which I mentioned earlier. When we see the curses in the Old Testament... They're usually worded as God bringing a curse onto people, God inflicting punishment on the people. And that's true, but very often the way the curses work isn't so much that God is wielding a big stick and bashing the people until they come into submission. It's more that he is removing his blessing from them. As I said, they're sort of stepping out of that realm of blessing into this realm outside of God's blessing, which is in a world of sin, is a, is a place of curse. It is a place where the shalom, the peace of God, does not reside because essentially, not because God doesn't want it there and he's not offering it, but because it's rejected it. It doesn't accept Jesus as Lord. And so the curse is as much ourselves removing ourselves from God's blessing as anything else. So it's like a child who... You know, you you get a young toddler and you say, don't wander off. Why? Because when a child stays close to you, they're safe. You can protect them from harm. You've probably got all the goodies in your bag that they can eat and the toys they can play with. But if they wander off, what happens? They're wandering into a realm of danger and perhaps hardship. It's not that mum and dad don't want to protect them. It's that suddenly they can't, not as easily. 
It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They're given the choice between which tree to eat. Are you going to eat from the tree of life or from the tree of the knowledge of good, uh, good and evil? And what do they choose? Every time it's good and evil. We want, to, we want to be able to figure this out for ourselves. We want to be our own moral authority. But as long as we're walking close to God, his arm around us, by his side, him uh, us keeping in step with him, and we're under the shelter of his blessing and protection. But if we wander off, God's like saying, well, okay then, if that's what you want, but I can't really help you from, if you're over there, you'll, you'll have to wear the consequences. And that's what we call the curse. Could he intervene? Well, yes, he could, but he honours our choices. And so when times are tough, it's easy to start to get afraid and rather than trust to seek our own safety through our own resources. We, rather than the tree of life, of dependence on God and dwelling in his word, we seek the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, working it out for ourselves. Friends, but when times are tough, this is where faith begins. Will we stay close to God? Will we stay close to his ways? Of course, this goes way beyond finances, but it includes finances. And finances have such a hold on us that they're a powerful sign of our faith. Will we stay close to God in his ways, looking to him and his tree of life, or do we panic and close in on ourselves and follow the world's knowledge and wisdom? If we do that, we start to move away from the place of blessing into danger. We withhold the tithe, the giving, may not be a literal tithe, but that giving, that generous spirit towards God, that it's an act of worship because our money represents our time and our dreams and our investment. And when we give it to God, we are expressing his worth to us. If we withhold that, we're withholding our worship, we're losing our connection with God who sacrificially gives himself to us. And so that's why when that financial planner said to Andrea and me that we should review our giving, we ignored him. (laughs) We're like, no, our giving is the first budget item. Everything else has to work around that. And friends, God has been faithful. Now, it does get tricky. Sometimes we do have to tighten our belts um, those commands to tithing and giving in Israel were particularly for, they, they were in the first place for people had, who had land, who had means. Um, and when you really don't have to have means and you really need to start crying out to God. And I wouldn't want anyone to go into debt, uh, so they can tithe. So, okay, there's an element of common sense in what I'm going to say, but there is also a real challenge here to faith. Because To grow in our faith and give God space to work, that only starts to happen when we're at the end of our resources, right? When I have nothing and all I've got is God, it's like, okay, God, I've got to see what you're going to do now. When we pray for healing because the doctors are at their end of something, God, are you going to do something here? When we have a broken relationship, and we've done everything we can. God, we need a miracle. And when our finances, the wallet's empty, the bank account's looking pretty poor, God, 
Are you going to do something here? I need a miracle. Miracles happen when we reach the end of our resources and rely on God. So I want to ask you today, is there a step of faith you need to take in order to seek God's blessing? Now, I know for some of you, you already live in a place of generosity and uh, praise God. But I'm guessing there are some here who are perhaps held back by fear or doubt. There may be even some here, uh, because we're all subject to this temptation, who may be held back by greed and materialism. But, you know, maybe the question, will God really provide? What if I don't have enough? What's going to happen then? But God says in Malachi, you're having hardship because you're not giving. So here's an experiment I want to challenge you with. For the next month, let's say for the month of November, why don't you try giving just a little bit more? If you don't give regularly, particularly to the church, try it for just one month. Try tithing and see what happens. Now, maybe you just can't countenance giving 10%. For one month, I'd really challenge you to try that. But if you really can't, just give something, 5%. If you're already giving, why not try giving a little bit more? If you're not giving 10%, bump it up. See what happens. 15% maybe. More. And as you do, though, remember this is an act of worship first and foremost. It's a first and foremost giving our hearts to God because money so often has our heart. And in giving it to God, we're releasing. Pray. (laughs) Pray as you go. Seek God. Dedicate yourself to him as well as your finances. And look, if after a month or maybe two, God hasn't blessed you in some way, if you're really struggling to get food on the table and pay the bills and you have no joy in it and you're not feeling closer to God, okay, stop. You don't have to do it. It's not what Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. And if it ain't bringing cheer into your life, ask God why. What's going on? Do some self-examination. But if it is, what might happen? It's not when things are easy that we need faith or we need miracles. It's when times are tough that our faith is tested. And what does God say in this regard? Test me in this way. See if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as I'm preaching this, I'm just aware of how much a hold money can have on me sometimes. And Father, I'm sure that's common to many of us. Lord, give us the faith, the courage, the conviction to honour you. Father, the understanding to know what's happening when we relinquish our finances to you. And Father, I I pray that as we do that, you will multiply your ministry here in this church, that your kingdom will come into our city and into our world. Father, I thank you for the abundant generosity of this church. We see 
uh, Lord, through our faith offering and through our offerings, Lord, there's so much more to do. And Father, there's so much more for you to do within our hearts and our homes and our families. Please make us more like Jesus. Amen. Yeah,